Our scripture today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 151, and in the following Jesus Bible, page 189. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children, first grade and under, if you would like to go to our children's worship, I'll invite you to line up with Miss Brittany. If you're visiting here with us today and you'd like for your children to go over there, we ask that one of your parents go over and get them signed up with our volunteers as they receive age-appropriate teaching on this same passage of scripture we've just read together. So what is your greatest hope for the children in your family? Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, or an uncle, when these kids have grown up and gone off on their own, what do you want to be true of their lives then? That they're happy, successful, married, maybe just getting them out of the house would be good enough? Or is there something more? that you want for the kids you love. While our children uh, might think we expect too much from them, I'm afraid we often expect too little. Either that or we hope for and expect the wrong things altogether. Because our kids can graduate high school and college with top honors. They can be well-adjusted, successful, married, and yet be completely dead inside spiritually. So what do we really want for the kids that we love? These are questions that seem worth considering today as Rhett graduates from children's worship into grown-up worship. So let's look again at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. This is one of those times, Rhett, when you can get your Bible out and we can read along as a pastor reads. You've got to keep that pastor honest. Make sure he's not sticking stuff in there. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells us that this command in Deuteronomy 6 is the most important command in all the law and the prophets. But what does Moses mean when he communicates this to us from the heart of God? This is what I believe he's telling us, that the first and most important command in all of scriptures is to be faithful to God's purposes in every aspect of your life. To be faithful to God's purposes in every aspect of your life. Wait a second. Faithful to God's purposes? I thought Moses commanded us to love God. Well, exactly. Love for God is not a feeling, first and foremost. 
Now, it's helpful and good to have affection for God, to have positive feelings for God, but this scripture is not a command to feel some certain kind of feeling. No, love for God is a response to experiencing his never-ending love. Love for God is a response to experiencing his never-ending love. In 1 John chapter 4, Jesus' beloved disciple put it this way. He said, we love because he first loved us. So think about the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, kids, I bet y'all remember the first five books of the Bible. So let's see if you can do them together. You ready? Let me see all kids' eyes. Y'all ready? What's the first one? Okay, good. All right, it's a great start. Here we go. Genesis. That's right. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and the other books happened before it in the story of Israel. So let's think about what had God done already in Numbers and in Exodus especially before he gave this command in Deuteronomy. What had already happened? In Exodus, God had already saved his people from Egypt. In Exodus, God had already given them the law. And despite Israel's consistent failure and sin throughout the book of Exodus into the book of Numbers, God continued to forgive and forgive and forgive. God did not abandon his people. No, God loved Israel over and over and over and over to the point of seeming insanity. And after he has loved them and loved them and loved them with the patience that only God could have, then he says, love me. In return, we love because he first loved us. What about you and me? Where do we fall in the story of redemption? Yes, we remember Egypt. We remember the giving of the law. But brothers and sisters, we we live in this era, this age, following the cross of Christ. We have seen God's love, God's forgiveness, God's patience in even greater measure. And so we love because he first loved us. But what does that mean to love God in response to how he's loved us in the past? How are we to respond to this great love he's shown us in the cross? Well, what does the text say? Let's look at how this command is structured. It says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why put these three prepositional phrases on there? Why not just say, love Yahweh? Why does it have to be with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might? Well, let's think about what each of these ideas, the heart and the soul and the might, let's think about what those might have meant to Moses' first hearers. When we think about hearts, we usually think about feelings, affections, passions. Not so the Hebrew people. In their way of thinking, the heart was the seat of the will and the intentions. The heart was the place where you pondered things. It's where you made decisions. For Hebrew, a heart was pretty similar to how we describe the mind. And so if we wanted to communicate the the meaning of this text, not the word, but the meaning of this text in a more contemporary way, we might interpret it like this. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your mind or intentions. So, let's think about that. To love God with all your heart 
meaning your mind and intentions, means this, to thoughtfully commit yourself to follow our Savior, the one who saved us in the past. We commit ourselves to follow him. Love, listen to this, husbands and wives, parents, love is the language of commitment. As a bride observes her fiancé's character over a period of time, a bride-to-be. As a bride-to-be observes her fiancé's care and respect to her, she responds by committing to him and saying, I do, yes, I will give my life to you. In the same way, God invites us to consider who he is and what he has done, to look back on his saving work throughout history, of course in the work of Christ, to also see his grace to us and to people that we know and to the saints throughout the ages, and to make a choice to say, yes, in my heart, it is my intention, my commitment, my vow to follow you, O God. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, to commit yourself intentionally, thoughtfully, internally to him. But what about the soul? What does it mean to love God with our soul? When the Hebrews used the word soul, they didn't mean some invisible self inside of you. That kind of notion doesn't really develop until the New Testament. Ironically, when the Old Testament talks about the soul, it's not talking about one part of you. It's actually talking about much more, the whole of your being. In Genesis chapter 2, it says this, And Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That word for creature is the same word for soul that we see throughout the whole Old Testament. So the soul, when you read that in the Old Testament, it's not talking about one little bitty part of you. It's talking about all of you. Your soul is your whole being. So, for someone to love God with their soul doesn't mean to to love him with one invisible part of us. It means to love God with our whole being, our whole self. And so what Moses is saying here builds upon itself. He says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your mind or intentions and with all your being. So he doesn't just want your mind. He doesn't just want your intentions, your thoughts, your plans. No. To love God with all your soul means to live your whole life in response to God's saving word. So, he doesn't want your thoughts and your words, your commitment cards and your membership vows. Those are fine. He wants you. And he wants all of you, all of your life. And that leads to the third phrase in the command. We're commanded to love Yahweh with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. So Moses starts with our internal life, our thoughts, our will, our intentions. God does want us to commit to him thoughtfully and intentionally. But he wants us to keep that commitment, to live our lives out for him. And with this final phrase, Moses pushes this command to the nth degree. What does God mean when he says to love us with all of our might? He doesn't just want your life. He doesn't just want your being. No, to love God with all your might means to, ex- means to expend every resource at your disposal, even life itself, to serve God and his kingdom purposes. 
So when you look at this command in Deuteronomy 6, you find that it's not too dissimilar from Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. He wants everything you have. So here's the question that every man, woman, boy, and girl needs to contemplate this morning. Is every aspect of my life submitted to the purposes of the one who sent his son to die because he loves us? This is the challenge and invitation of this text. That every aspect of your life should be somehow aimed at God's purposes. That everything we do, whether at work, home, church, or play, that all of it would be because of Jesus and for Jesus. Now keep in mind we're reading the law. And there's not one person in this room that has obeyed this command perfectly. But that doesn't mean we just shrug our shoulders and move on. Oh, no, can't do that. Let's move on with our life. No, we repent. We remember the gospel. We remember that we have the Spirit, that we've been given a new heart, and we aim to love God, starting with our intentions, and then aiming to bring our whole lives into line with those intentions, and we do that with every resource at our disposal, and when we fail, we repent, we believe the gospel, and we aim to serve God again with everything that we are and with everything that we have. So consider this, this life of all-encompassing faithfulness to God and His purposes is what we and our children were made for. So this text is not just aimed at adults. It's also aimed at our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, and our nephews, and Rhett, and every other child in our church. Not only are we as adults called to live out this kind of faithfulness and wholehearted commitment to God, but we are called to teach that to our children with our words and our lives. Look at verses 6 and 7 in our text. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children... And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, if you don't have kids in your home, you might think, sweet, this is when I can check out and plan what I'm having for lunch. Again, there's a potluck today. You don't have to think about that. But every time a child is baptized in our church, do you know we don't allow godparents in the EPC? Don't know that? You know why? Because you, the body of Christ, fill that role for them. So every time a child is baptized in our church, you, the members of this congregation, make a commitment to these kids that are sitting right here. And this is what you have promised to do. So if you don't have kids in your house, you've made this promise, though. So listen to these promises you've made. I ask Faith Presbyterian, do you, the members of this congregation, acting for yourselves and on behalf of the whole body of Christ, Assume responsibility with these parents for the spiritual nurture of this child. You always say, we do. Then, I ask Faith Presbyterian, do you commit yourselves to set a godly example before this child to provide as far as you are able all that is necessary to the end that he or she may one day confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? 
So if you've ever been present at our church or another Presbyterian church and you've joined us, the body of Christ, in saying we do, you have a role to play in this too. Children hear everything. I have three kids, 10, 8, and 6. I've learned this. They hear everything. But more impactfully, they see everything too. They see what we do. They experience what we do. And so we adults have two different issues to address. Am I living a life that lines up with this command to love God? And am I passing it on to the kids I'm committed to? And so we find ourselves back at the beginning. What do we want most for our children's future? And what are we doing to encourage them in that direction? How do we get from where we are today to the end goal of our children loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might? And mind you, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and others, you have no control in this. Ultimately, this is the work of God in their lives. So we can pray And we can be faithful to do the things God has told us to do. Ultimately, it's God's work. So what have we been called to do? What do we as adults in these kids' lives, what do we have the capacity to do? So as adults who are committed to these children's faithfulness, we have a responsibility to these three things. First, went backwards, sorry. We have a responsibility first to be present Second, to teach love for God with our words. And third, to model love for God with our lives. This is true for parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and anyone here who's a member of this church in relation to the children of this church. This is the responsibility to be present, to teach the love of God with our words, and to model it with our lives. And we see these three activities in our text. What does Moses instruct us adults to do in verse 7? Look again. You shall teach... These words, loving God diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This is the normal way for the gospel to be passed on to our children. First, we have to be present with them. So the normal way for your kids to come to faith in Jesus The normal way for your kids to grow in love for Jesus is sitting at the dining room table with you, eating and talking about the Lord. Or it's driving around town talking about the Lord. It's praying together in the morning and at bedtime. It's making your home a place where the message of Jesus is celebrated and spoken often with our words and shown through our lives. And once again, this emphasizes the importance of us as adults attending to our own love for God. If we're not loving God with all our heart, soul, and might, and if we're not demonstrating repentance toward that ends, our words aren't going to mean jack to our kids. But if our lives are demonstrating a desire for this, a pursuit of this, and repentance in the process, then our presence and our words will mean something spiritually meaningful to our kids. But let me address the elephant in the room. Many adults, especially parents, don't feel equipped to do this. 
how do I talk to my kids about Jesus? How do you bring up the gospel with your children? How do we teach them the ways of God? Well, here's the good news. Raising our children to love God is a task not given to parents alone, but to the people of God together. So to whom does Moses give this command? He gives it to Israel as a collective. Look at verses 4 through 7. Look at whom this uh, command is addressed to. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You, singular, so we should take this as a collective, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. All the verbs in this text are singular. Israel loved God. Israel teach your children. It's a collective. So yes, parents bear the primary responsibility in this, in this regard. But if you're a Christian adult in this church, this is where we get these membership vow or the baptismal vows from, you have a responsibility to help in this process. And what does that look like at FPC? Well, the primary ways that FPC, FPC helps parents raise their kids to love God is number one, relationships, and number two, Sunday school. Relationships and Sunday school. So remember, we all have a responsibility as a body to be present to these kids, to teach with our words, and to model with our lives. That all starts with presence, with relationships. So if you do not have FPC children in your home, how can you cultivate a relationship with families, with children? Maybe you need to start by asking the question. Maybe it's never occurred to you before. But it is of immense value to me as a parent that my kids know so many of you by name and by presence. You are in many ways a family to them. You've invited our insanity into your home. And you, many if not most of you, have been willing to enter into the insanity of our home. Our kids see that, they know that, and they feel your love, and that's essential. According to George Barna, one of the greatest indicators statistically of a child continuing in faith in teenage years into adulthood is having a meaningful relationship with another Christian adult that is not their parent. It's so very important. So if you don't have kids in your home, the children of FPC and the parents of FPC need your friendship, your patience, and your presence. So consider how you can be present to the families in our church. Here's one key way you can do that. One key way to have that relationship with a family with children is to serve in or attend Sunday school. I didn't say you have to serve. I said serve in or attend Sunday school. A lot of you may think that the only way to impact families for Christ is to teach in Sunday school. Trust me, we're always looking for volunteers. It's also of help just to come to Sunday school because those parents actually get the ability to, to, to put their kids in a class and to be just by themselves with other adults. For some of our moms, I'm afraid that's the only time they get to talk to another adult without a child echoing in their ear. But Sunday school is a wonderful opportunity to get to know each other 
and to help each other grow. It's a time to connect with these parents or with these children and to teach them by your words and your example. You know, you may think, ah, I'm, I'm 110 years old. I don't need to go to Sunday school. I've learned it all. Guess what? We need to learn from you. As a 39-year-old dad, I need wisdom from you. So it is of great value to have a relationship with all of you in the body of Christ. So if you don't have kids, I encourage you to consider those two practices. Work to cultivate relationships with these families and make Sunday school a priority. But what about the ones that are dozing right now because we're just worn out? What about the parents? If you have FPC children at home, weekly attendance in worship and Sunday school is the best way that FPC can institutionally help you raise your children to love God. So if you're hearing Deuteronomy 6, like I am as a dad, and you feel the weight of it, the difficulty and the challenge of raising your kids to love God, we have two opportunities available to you every week where you can come and we can walk alongside you and help you in this journey. Bring your kids to worship and to Sunday school. Now, one of these I can be really imperative about. The scriptures are clear. God commands his people every week to set aside a day for rest and the provision of Christ and to worship him. So if you don't prioritize weekly worship for your family, you are in sin. And if you are actively, and when you do that, when you don't keep your kids in worship, worshiping God, you're working against your children loving God. Conversely, if you're weekly worshiping with your children, you're doing one of the most important things you can do to model to your kids what it looks like to love God. You are singing the praises of Jesus. You're saying what you believe, and it demonstrates them in a very powerful way what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But what about Sunday school? It's not commanded in Scripture for you to go to Sunday school. So I, I can't be as hard line on that. But... Right now, it's the time you'll give us. We've had lots of conversations with our congregation. We've sent out a lot of surveys. We've asked questions. And we've also watched ministries die for lack of participation. And consistently, the time that people will give us to invest in their kids and to invest in parents to do the work of discipleship is Sunday morning before worship. So we as a session made a decision. The Sunday school hour is on Sunday morning is when we are going to invest in the spiritual growth of our children and our adults. So if you want personally to grow to love God, and if you want your kids to grow to love God, I encourage you to consider making Sunday school a priority. Worshiping God with his people is more important. God commanded us to worship him. But if you need the help of other Christians, which you do, to gr help you grow and to help your children grow, I invite you strongly to make Sunday school a practice in your family. Raising our children to love God is a task, not given to parents alone, but to the people of God together. So let us be a part of that, parents. Bring your kids to worship on Sunday and come an hour earlier for Sunday school. Why? What happens in Sunday school? If I'm going to make this kind of a passionate call to be in Sunday school, what happens in there? In our children's Sunday school, they're learning the whole story of the Bible in a safe environment with gifted, trained teachers. We're teaching them the whole story of the Bible, the God that loves them, and we're inviting them to love in response. And when I say we have gifted teachers in there, I, 
I've had people disappointed to come to my class in Sunday school because they were helpers the previous week with our Sunday school teachers. My kids are coming home with a greater knowledge of the scriptures than, frankly, I have. (laughs) You know, we get to the historical books, I get a little bit shaky. These kids are coming home really learning the content of God's word and really being challenged to love and trust God. What about adults? What are we doing in there? Well, conveniently, we have a new set of classes starting next week. And one class is asking, how can we share the gospel with our kids in our homes? How do we create this kind of home so that we disciple and rear our children to love God? If you want to know how to do that, you need help in that regard, please come. We have two other classes, too. One where John Crane is going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. I'd, I'd sit and listen to John Crane take me line by line through the newspaper, let alone the Word of God. So come check it out. Chris Talley is going to be teaching. <laughs> Poor Chris. He looks away as soon as I say his name. Chris is teaching on developing spiritual disciplines. You want a brother who is godly and wise and has a deep relationship with Jesus to show you the way? I can commend no one better to you than Christopher Talley. There's something that all of us can benefit from in Sunday school, and that includes you who don't have children too. Come be a part of these classes. Cultivate a relationship with these other Christians. They need you in their growth, and I hate to break it to you. You need them too. So I challenge you. Here's my challenge. Sunday school, our Sunday school curriculums last for 10 weeks. I want to challenge you to attend the next 10 weeks And at the end of those 10 weeks, I'm going to remind you, staff, help me remember this. (laughs) I'm going to remind you at the end of the 10 weeks to to ask this question, was it worth it? If it wasn't worth it, don't come back. But if you saw in your life, in the life of your children, an impulse, an encouragement through the work of the body of Christ to love God and to pursue him with all of your life, to come back. Ask yourself, was the regularity of these relationships, was this teaching, and then worship, did it help me and my children to take steps forward in loving God? I feel confident that it will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the means of grace. Thank you for worship, the sacraments, preaching, prayers, song, all these things you've commanded to us in worship. But thank you also for the body of Christ. These brothers and sisters that walk alongside us in our journey of faith. And whether we still have little kids at home, whether our kids are grown and gone, and maybe we have other children in our family that we love, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to live this life of faithfulness, that we will model it for the children in our church and in our lives, and that we'll also um, teach it with the things that we say. Lord, we pray for these kids. We think especially um, of Rhett as he's graduating into uh, grown-up worship. We pray for all these children that they would trust Christ and that they would live a life of love for God that would bring such glory to the name of Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.